I want to start out by telling a story. It's a story about two Christians that got married. This isn't a real story, by the way. It's a story I made up. Steve and Susan met at Main Street Baptist Church, and after becoming increasingly attracted to one another, they began to date, and eventually dating led to engagement, and they did premarital counseling with the pastor, and they both knew that marriage would take work. Everyone told them that. They knew they were going to have to sacrifice, but they both believed it was worth it. After all, Susan felt so happy around Steve, and Steve felt like Susan was the perfect girl for him. They had a lot of fun together, they had lots in common, and because they both enjoyed being around one another so much, they felt like they could weather whatever came against them. So, before God and before many friends, they exchanged vows and they were married. And things started off well enough, but over time, Susan began to get irritated with Steve. He would come home from work, eat dinner, and then get on his phone and watch TV and just kind of lounge around. He didn't offer to help with the dishes, he didn't help fold clothes, and he wasn't picking up after himself. She tried bringing it up, and Steve said he'd do better, but nothing changed. And Steve, on the other hand, was also growing frustrated. Their sex life just wasn't what he thought it was going to be like. He was still watching pornography from time to time, and it was becoming even more of a temptation because of the lack of satisfaction. But what really bothered Steve was what he perceived as a lack of respect and gratitude from Susan. She just didn't understand and appreciate how hard he worked and how much rest he needed when he came home from a long day's work. All she did was nag him about helping out around the house when he just needed some time to himself to relax. That's the way Steve saw it. So when Susan began to confront Steve about his laziness, he threw it right back in her face, accusing her of not being appreciative of his contributions to the family. And the divide and the bitterness only grew as Steve and Susan both dug in their heels. And they each tried talking to friends and confidants about it, expressing the ways in which they felt like they were being treated unfairly. And in Steve and Susan's respective opinions, the problem in their marriage was their spouse. As Susan felt more and more abandoned, her anger at Steve only grew and she began to withdraw emotionally. She gave up on expecting anything but laziness and selfishness from Steve. And as Susan withdrew, Steve's affections for Susan waned. And he struggled more and more with pornography as he sought comfort in other sources outside of his wife. They they met with the pastor to try to work on things. And the pastor encouraged Steve to love his wife by stepping up more around the house. And he encouraged Susan to love Steve with more frequent words of affirmation and appreciation about his contributions to the household. But the steps felt forced. And neither Steve nor Susan felt like progress was being made. They both remained bitter towards one another and each felt like they had received the raw end of some kind of deal when they got married. This wasn't what they had signed up for. Finally, they had had enough. And after seeking counsel from some well-meaning friends, Steve and Susan decided that they would be better off 
with a fresh start. And after all, God wouldn't want us living in this toxic environment for the rest of our lives, would he? They said. It just wasn't sustainable. Divorce was the only option. So Steve and Susan filed for divorce, and another marriage came to a devastating end. Now, stories like that play out across America all the time, every single day. Stories like that play out all the time, even in the church. And while many scenarios like this don't end in divorce and the couples will stay married, oftentimes those marriages are cold and lifeless. But what if I told you that there is one ingredient that a marriage needs, an ingredient that if you have it, will ensure that the scenario that I just laid out for you will never, ever happen in your marriage. Would you believe me if I told you there's one ingredient? This one ingredient will resolve conflict. It will lead to satisfaction and contentment within your marriage, and it will increase intimacy within your marriage. There is one ingredient like that. Do you know what it is? It's grace. Grace. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look specifically at verses 12 to 14, and we're going to learn how grace is the critical component to any godly relationship, especially the marriage relationship. I'm going to actually read verses 5 through 14 because I think it'll be helpful for some context, but we're going to zero in on verses 12 to 14. So here is what God's Word says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, you may be thinking, Jared, I don't see the word grace in this passage. I thought you were an expositor. What is this going to be? Some sort of topical sermon? (laughs) That phrase, forgiving each other, is the Greek word karizomai. Karizomai, which is the verb form for charis, which means grace. Grace. So when we extend mercy to someone, we're choosing to withhold the consequences that someone deserves for their actions. But grace, this 
forgiveness that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3, this karizomai, goes beyond that. Because with grace, you not only elect not to demand payment for wrongdoing, but you freely give good in return for evil. So let me say that again. With grace, you not only elect not to demand payment for wrongdoing, but you freely give good in return for evil. That's the kind of forgiveness that Paul is calling us to in our relationships here in Colossians chapter 3. This kind of forgiveness goes beyond merely letting something go. It seeks to do good to the perpetrator. It would be like getting pulled over by a police officer for going 80 in a 50 mile an hour speed limit zone. And then when he pulls you over, you call him a disgusting pig. And then in response, not only does he let you off with a warning, but then he says, you know what? Hey, come with me. I'm, let's go to the gas station. I'm going to fill your car up with gas and I'm, and I'm going to buy you a hot meal. That'd be like unheard of. You're like, what? Like, wh- why? That's karitsomai. Grace is selfless unconditional love. It's a love even for your enemies. As verse 14 says, love binds everything together. I think that love or this, this, this grace, this idea of undeserved love is the banner that hangs over all of the attributes that we see in verse 12. This compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If you have love, you'll have those things. And the conduct Paul calls us to here applies to every relationship in our lives, but especially in our marriages. I'm convinced that if you walk these things out in your marriage, then your marriage will thrive. If you have grace toward one another in your marriage, your marriage will thrive. This grace that Colossians chapter 3 talks about can heal even the deepest divides. But I must warn you, this is not an easy calling. To live out. It's a call to self-sacrifice. It's a call to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow Jesus by dying and rising with Him every single day in your marriage relationship. The The main idea of the message this morning is this. Recipients of God's grace are called to be reflections of God's grace in our marriages. Recipients of God's grace are called to be reflections of God's grace in our marriages. If you're like me, as you, as you read these attributes that are described in verse 12, you immediately thought about how short you fall of displaying those things in your own life. But Paul gives us two powerful motivations we're displaying this kind of grace in our marriage. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. The first motivation that Paul gives us for displaying this, this grace that he calls us to live with is that you are recipients of a new identity. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a recipient of a new identity. Paul begins in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. That's how he addresses us. He, he starts by reminding Christians of who they are. If you are in Christ, then there are certain things that are true about you that ought to change your life. 
First, Paul says you are chosen. You are God's chosen ones. From before the foundation of the earth, you were chosen by God. Knowing that you would rebel against Him, God still predestined you for adoption as a son. God chose to set His love on you, not according to your works, but according to His own purpose and grace. The doctrine of election means that because God's love for you has nothing to do with what you've done, all you and I have earned is death, okay? God's love has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice of us. That mean, so what that means is that we can't lose it. We can't lose God's love. We can't lose our privileged position as a son of God because we did nothing to earn it. We were chosen from before the foundation of the earth. God chose to set his love on you. And God God has made a covenant with us, sealed by the blood of Christ, to love us forever as his cherished bride. So you are chosen. And then Paul says, you are holy. To be holy means to be set apart. God has set you apart so that you might display and reflect his glory. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Because we have been set apart by God, we must live distinct lives within the culture. This is especially true in our marriages. Ephesians chapter 5 explains how the marriage covenant is meant to be a display or a picture of the covenant that Jesus Christ has with His church. Christian couples, you have a holy marriage, a set-apart marriage. A marriage that is set apart from the world for the purpose of displaying the glory of God. You are holy, and you are beloved. You're beloved. In Christ, your status is beloved by God. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you with an everlasting love. God loves you with the kind of love that He's calling us to give to one another here in this passage. It's that carizo my love. The kind of love that not only chooses not to demand payment for wrongdoing, but then does, gives good in return for evil. That's the kind of love that God loves you with. And the cross of Christ is the ultimate display of this. It's where God demonstrated His love for us. Thomas read this last night, but I'm going to read it again. Listen to Paul a chapter earlier describe what God has done in Colossians 2.13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside Nailing it to the cross. So we deserved death, which was the wages for our sin. That's what we earned. But instead of exacting that payment from us, 
God exacted it from His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what was happening on the cross. Jesus Christ was taking on your sin debt, the payment that you owed for your sin, in your place. I, I want to read you what John Piper, Pastor John Piper said about this passage. He, he said this, he said, Whose sin was nailed to the cross? Your sin. My sin. Whose hands were nailed to the cross? Who was punished on the cross? Jesus. There's a beautiful name for this. It's called substitution. Whose sin was nailed to the cross? Your sin and my sin. Whose hands were nailed to the cross? Jesus' hands. That's substitution. That's what happened at the cross. But God doesn't stop there. Because not only does He remove our guilt, but He returns our evil with good. He gives us the gift of righteousness. You see, we need two things to happen to be able to stand before God on the last day. To be able to come to His presence. We need the guilt of our sin to be renewed and we need the righteousness of God. Those two things are imperative. We must have them or we cannot enter into heaven. We cannot stand in the presence of God. And God supplies both of those things in the cross of Christ. The guilt of our sin was removed when Jesus was nailed to the cross and your sin was nailed there along with Him. And then in exchange, He gives us the free gift of His righteousness as a gift that is received by grace through faith in Him alone. You are covered in the righteous robes of Jesus if you have trusted in Him. God returns your evil with good. That's grace. That's charizoma. God doesn't just... Give us another chance. That's not the kind of forgiveness that we're talking about here. He doesn't give you a clean slate and then tell you, okay, now try to do better this time, next time. God doesn't just look the other way or go, okay, no big deal. No, God actually removes the guilt of your sin and then gives you the righteousness of God that you need to be able to enter into His presence forever. That's the gospel. Can somebody say amen? Are we excited about this? This is good news. And so here's Paul's point in reminding us of our identity here, okay? Because you have been changed like this on the inside, in other words, God has made you holy and beloved in His electing of you. Because that's happened, now put on this godly conduct on the outside. You've been called out of the behavior described in verses 5 through 9. The immorality, the idolatry, the anger, the malice, the lying. You've been called out of that. that. Paul says that's not how Christians treat each other. At one time, he says in verse 7, you walked in those things. You were deserving of the wrath of God, he says in verse 6. But now, in verse 9 and 10, he says you're a new creation. So put on the new self. A soldier doesn't wear a tutu into battle. That's unbecoming. It doesn't make sense. A cross-country skier doesn't wear swim shorts. It makes no sense. We put on the clothing that's befitting of who we are. And what behavior is fitting for Christians to clothe themselves with? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. 
So what does it look like to put on these attributes in a marriage? Let's walk through these. Paul says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness. A compassionate heart is a disposition that results in acts of kindness. That phrase, compassionate heart, literally means bowels of mercy. It conveys this idea that deep inside of you, you yearn for the good of your spouse. When your spouse is hurting, you're hurting. When your spouse is rejoicing, you're rejoicing. You long for the good of your spouse. You could also call this selflessness. And a heart like this overflows in acts of kindness. Within marriage, a compassionate heart isn't in it for self-gratification. A compassionate heart doesn't see marriage being about me and my needs and how I can be served, but primarily about how I can demonstrate kindness to my spouse. Kindness could be a soft answer in response to a harsh comment from your spouse. Kindness could be an offer to watch the kids so that your spouse can get some time away. Kindness could be washing the dishes when you get home from work even though you're exhausted because you can tell that your spouse is exhausted too. And so you want to place his or her needs ahead of your own. Those are, that's kindness. Do you, do you demonstrate kindness on a regular basis towards your spouse? How many acts of kindness can you point back to over the past week in your marriage? that you can say, I demonstrated an act of kindness that flowed from a heart of compassion. The acts of kindness that spill out of your life in your marriage, or the lack thereof, say a lot about the condition of your heart. So do you have a compassionate heart or a selfish heart? Paul also says to put on humility and meekness. That word humility means lowly. The idea is expressed very well in Philippians 2 verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility or lowliness, count others more significant than yourself. Paul then goes on to describe Jesus as the quintessential example of this. He did not consider equality with God a thing thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and then humbled himself to death on a cross. Jesus set set aside his own desires for our good. As Thomas talked about last night, he came not to be served, but to serve. And Paul says, he goes on in Philippians 2, and he says this, Have this same mind among yourselves. Have this same mind among yourselves. Have the mind of Christ. Lower yourselves like Jesus in your marriage. Consider your spouse and his or her needs as more significant than your own. Humility like this will lead to wonderful peace in your marriage relationship. Now the opposite of humility, of course, is what? It's pride. It's pride. Pride thinks highly of self. Pride says the world revolves around me and my desires and other people must get in line with that, including my spouse. And when they don't, they're going to experience my wrath, right? That's what pride does. So when there's conflict in a marriage relationship, pride is always involved, always, always involved. And pride leads to stubbornness, 
which leads to division and a fracturing of fellowship. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Write this down. Humility stops an argument in its tracks. Humility stops an argument in its tracks. Let me give you a scenario. A husband makes an insensitive comment to his wife, and later she tries to bring it up in in a gentle way and says, you know, hey, honey, what you said, I really, that really hurt me and I didn't appreciate that. I wish you wouldn't have said it that way. And in response, he gets defensive. And he begins to point out the things, well, you did this and this and this. And he begins to point out some of the things that she's done. Now at this point, heels are dug in. Okay, Everybody's armored up and now rounds are flying. Each person is in their foxhole and we've retreated to our bunkers. But what if in the midst of that, one spouse lowers himself or herself and says, Honey, I'm sorry I hurt you. How can I change and serve you better next time? What would happen if one party made that move? I'll tell you what would happen. It would stop the argument in its tracks. It would bring the temperature down from up here all the way to down here. Because love covers a multitude of sins. That's what 1 Peter 4.8 says. And I'll just present this as a challenge for men, guys, because we're called by God to lead in our homes and lead in our marriages. You should be lining up as the first one out the door to initiate reconciliation in disagreements like this. It shouldn't be your your wife every time who's the one who's humbling herself first to come and seek reconciliation with you. You ought to be leading out on that. We're both called to it. Wives are called to do it too, yes. But husbands, if your wife is the only one who's humbling herself and settling disputes, then something's wrong. Something's wrong and you're not leading spiritually like you need to be. One of the, one of the other powerful ways that humility diffuses conflicts is through confession of sin. And my wife and I are not perfect, but... Honestly, it's easy to be married to Jen. It just, it is. Like, we, I remember people would tell us before we got married, and maybe you've heard this, like, you know, people, people would say stuff like, oh, enjoy, your, enjoy it while it lasts, you know, the old ball and chain, or, you know, things like that, or, oh, man, you know, marriage is going to be so hard, and things like that. And, I mean, and, and there have been some challenges, sure. You know, it, it hasn't always been, uh, you know, like, Paul, uh, like Thomas said, you know, unicorns and roses or whatever. Uh, last night, but what, what was it? Rainbows and unicorns, right, right. But honestly, it, it's not hard to be married to Jen. We just don't fight a lot, and we enjoy being around each other. And, and that's not because we don't mess up. I mess up a lot. I do the wrong thing a lot. But I, I think one of the keys for us is that I've learned, and, and Jen as well has learned, to be quick to humble ourselves and own up to our sin. And, and Jen is incredibly gracious in extending forgiveness to me when I do. She doesn't hold it over my head. Pride refuses to take responsibility. It tries to shift the blame on our spouse, and that will just increase the divide. But humility stops an argument in its tracks when sin is confessed and forgiveness is sought. So, I mean, we've 
you know, Brian talked about this. We talked about it in our breakout downstairs. But if there's a dispute going on, your tendency is going to going to want to either be to blame the circumstances around you or to blame your spouse and think that, well, something out there needs to change. But what your default needs to be is you need to examine your own heart and go, what in me needs to change? Because the change is going to start with you, with your own heart, if you want healing to begin to take place. Paul also says we need to put on patience. Growing up around the 4th of July and around New Year's Eve, uh, we loved it because we would go to the fireworks stand and buy fireworks, and we would always buy the M80s, you know, those little powerful uh, firecrackers, and we'd run around the neighborhood setting them off. We may or may not have participated in some nefarious activity. I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, but every now and then, there'd be an M80 in the box, and it'd have like a, like a really short fuse that had been like maybe fallen off or cut off. It'd be like a little stubby fuse, right? And I would not light those. I'd throw those out. I wouldn't light those uh, because uh, if you lit one of those, there was a real possibility that it would take your fingers off if you didn't get rid of it fast enough, and I wasn't interested in losing a finger. That short fuse can cause all kinds of destruction. And my, oh my, does anger cause all sorts of destruction in our marriage relationships, doesn't it? Patience is the idea of having a long fuse as opposed to being quick-tempered. Paul calls us to act like this as image bearers because God is like this. By the way, are you noticing a theme here? God perfectly displays all these attributes that Paul is calling us to here. These, are, these attributes describe God. Compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Well, you say, how do you know, Jared? It's because God has revealed himself clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is like. We don't have to wonder what God is like. He's shown us. He came to us. He came and dwelt among us. In, in Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses. Remember what God says? Mo- Moses wants to see God's glory. And so, out of all the things that God could have said to Moses when he reveals himself, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God is not quick-tempered. He is not ready to strike as soon as we slip up. But too often, that's how we react when our spouse slips up, isn't it? Instead of being slow to anger, we use anger to punish our spouse or to try to force them to change. One thing that I've been learning recently, especially with our kids, is that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Not in me, not in my spouse, not in my children. Anger will not bring about the desired results that you're looking for in your spouse. If you're trying to use anger to get your spouse to fall in line with what you want them to do, it will not work. So Christian husband, do you want your wife to grow in godliness, in Christ-likeness, to be the spouse that God's called her to be? Do you want to have a fulfilling marriage? I can assure you that your anger won't produce that in her. It will discourage her and embitter her towards you. Christian wife, do you want your husband to grow as a godly, Jesus-like leader in your home? Punishing him with the cold shoulder will not get the message across. 
The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And the only way we can demonstrate this long-suffering, this patience, is by remembering how patient God is with us. You are beloved despite your sin. Think of how long Jesus was patient with you, waiting for you to surrender your life to Him, to trust in Him. God patiently endured 24 years of rebellion in my life, a hypocritical rebellion at that. I claimed to be a Christian, but I was not living a life pleasing to God at all, and God patiently endured me for 24 years. I struggled to put up with 24 seconds of rebellion from my kids. Not to mention, God continues to be patient with us after we become Christians because we foolishly turn back to worldly things, even though we know better. So who are we to demand from our spouse what God does not demand from us? Consider the patience of God and let it soothe your anger. Let it lengthen your patience. Lengthen your long-suffering. Be patient. You are recipients of a new identity, and that identity ought to, ought to cause you to put on this godly behavior in your marriage. But there's one more motivation that Paul gives us. He tells us in verse 13 that you are recipients of great grace. He says, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you've been given a new identity, but you've also been given great grace. We must give the grace of forgiveness to our spouse Because God has given us the grace of forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those things that's easier said than done, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Remember, the idea of forgiveness here is grace. So it's not just sheathing your sword, so to speak, but serving the one who sinned against you. This idea of choosing to do good to the one who sinned against you is incredibly countercultural, but it will also transform your marriage. Paul says that if one has a complaint against another, forgive one another. Anyone ever have a complaint against their spouse? You don't need to raise your hands, but I mean, we all do, right? The question is this Are you quick to forgive when you have a complaint against your spouse? Do you bear with them or do you have one of those I'm not going to put up with this anymore types of attitudes? The reality is that God bears with us. We disobey over and over again. We fall short daily and he bears with us. What if, what if God bared with you as patiently or as impatiently as you bear with your spouse? What would that be like? Does that, does that, does that thought terrify you? Like what if God were, were as impatient with you as you are with your spouse? That's kind of scary to me. I'm thankful God's not like me. <laughs> right? Let's, let's just take a moment to praise God that he is not like a man. Especially not like this man. He is holy and other than us. 
This isn't to say that you should never bring up faults or vocalize your desire for your spouse to change. The point is the attitude with which we're bringing these things up. You can, you can bring things like this up and you can address these things with gentleness and with patience. But we could also turn this around. How do you respond when your spouse raises a complaint against you? What about when the tables are turned and it's not a complaint you have against your spouse, but it's when they raise a complaint against you? Are you quick to take it personal and get defensive? Is that your go-to? Is Get defensive? Get into my bunker? Do you throw something back at them? This is where humility and compassion come back into play. You must have the compassion to care about your spouse's concerns and the humility to see the truth in them. Let me say that again. You need... When your spouse raises a complaint against you, you need to have the compassion to care about your spouse's concerns and the humility to see the truth in them. Because while maybe or maybe it is or maybe it isn't all completely true, but I can tell you there's probably some truth in it. There probably is. We're oftentimes blind to our own shortcomings. And oftentimes our spouse can see things that we can't see in us. They know us really well after all. Your spouse lives with you. And so if your spouse raises a complaint with you in in a loving way, instead of being defensive immediately and beginning to fire rounds back in the other direction, maybe have a compassionate heart and take your spouse's feelings into consideration and, and have the humility to go, well, maybe she has a point. Maybe he has a point. Let me examine my heart. And I'll just ask you, does your spouse feel safe to bring concerns or critiques concerning your marriage to you? Is there safety to do that in your marriage? Or have you created an environment, an unsafe emotional environment where your spouse feels like he or she is walking on eggshells? Like, I, don't, I can't bring something up to him or he's just going to snap at me in anger or, or I can't bring something up to her or she's just going to shut down emotionally and go into this deep depression and not talk to me for three days and I don't want to set her off. Is, are you helping to create a safe environment, emotional environment in your marriage where your spouse can come to you? And, 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 and bring complaints or bring issues up that need to be addressed in the marriage. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, your spouse needs to have the right to come and, and criticize, right? We're not talking about critical complaints like, man, you're such a bad cook. Why can't you do better at cooking? I'm tired of all these bad meals. That's not the kind of what we're talking about here, right? No, we're talking about like, hey, I really, I really wish that we could, we could have some more one-on-one time together. I'm just feeling like I'm not getting as much of you as I would desire, and you're spending a lot of time at work and a lot of time, you know, doing other things uh, with your friends, and I just, I feel a little neglected. Like, is your marriage a safe place for things like that? That's what I'm asking you. And if it's not, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be corrected. We need to have the compassionate heart and humility to listen and to receive feedback. And when our faults towards one another do get brought out in the open, through compassionate hearts and humility, we must be ready to forgive. And the basis of our forgiveness is God's forgiveness towards us. Jesus illustrated this truth in a parable. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
Peter asked Jesus, he said, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus replied, Not seven times, but seventy times seven. And then he, he told this parable. Jesus said, A king wished to settle accounts with his servants. And one servant owed him 10,000 talents. And 10,000 talents, uh, one talent was the equivalent of 20 years wages. One talent, 20 years wages. This servant was in debt 10,000 talents. In other words, this is an insurmountable debt. It's a debt he could never repay. And so the servant fell on his knees before the king and he begged for mercy and he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's almost kind of laughable and pitiable because he's saying, I'll pay you everything. But clearly he was hopelessly in debt and there's no way he could, he could have had the, the rest of his life and he could have never paid off this debt entirely. So out of pity, the king decided to forgive the debt entirely. He not only declined to punish the servant, but he incurred the loss himself. But then that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him some money. A hundred denarii, which was about 20 weeks worth of wages. Not chump change, but nothing compared to the 10,000 talent debt that he had just been forgiven of. But what did this first servant do? He grabbed the second servant and began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. And the second servant fell on his knees and said, have patience with me and I promise I will pay you what you owe. But the first servant said, no way, dude. And he had him thrown into prison until his entire debt should be paid. And when the king heard about this, he was enraged. He was enraged. And he called the first servant in and he said this in Matthew chapter 18. Says the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The sin debt that we owe to God is infinite. That's what that 10,000 talent debt is meant to signify. It's a debt that we could never possibly repay. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, canceled that debt by nailing it to the cross of Christ. Your spouse may, in fact, sin against you. He or she may say a hurtful word or take advantage of you or betray your trust. But your spouse's sin, while serious, is nothing compared to your sin against an infinitely holy God. The point of the parable of the unforgiving servant is that people who refuse to forgive, demonstrate that they have not truly been forgiven themselves. 
Forgiveness for Christians, forgiveness, unforgiveness, sorry. For Christians, unforgiveness is unbecoming and unacceptable. Unforgiveness is unbecoming and unacceptable. It's unbecoming in that it contradicts our testimony. And it's unacceptable in that it demonstrates a heart that has not been changed by the grace of God. A heart that has been changed by God's grace will be quick to forgive because it knows how desperately it needs forgiveness. Do you have bitterness in your heart towards your spouse right now? Really search your heart. Is there bitterness in your heart, unforgiveness in your heart towards your spouse right now? Are there past transgressions? Maybe they happened five years ago. Maybe they happened an hour ago. Are there past transgressions that you are holding over your spouse's head that you can't let go of, that you're still trying to punish your spouse for? Are you withholding forgiveness because you're waiting for your spouse to start correcting the behavior before you extend grace? To close, let's revisit the story of Steve and Susan from earlier real quick. Their friends and their pastor encouraged them to take action. They, they told Steve to help out more around the house. And they told Susan to try and let Steve know more often that she was thankful for how hard he worked. But it didn't help. They went through the motions. They followed the steps. But the bitterness remained and the love remained cold. Why? Because a marriage that is defined by forbearance and forgiveness is built upon the foundation of God's love towards us. The change must happen on the inside first. The change must happen on the inside first. You must understand the the new identity that's been given to you, and you must understand the great grace that that has been given to you. That is what produces change from the inside out and results in this gracious behavior that will transform your marriage. The foundation is knowing who we are in Christ and that God has forgiven us. So as you fix your gaze on Christ, you will know him and his love more. And that will transform you. And that's what I want to leave you with. Do you want to be a godly husband? Do you want to be a godly wife? Then look to the cross. Look to the cross. See the Son of God hanging on the tree, swallowing the cup of God's wrath that you deserved for your sin. And all this so that you could be forgiven, adopted, and welcomed into everlasting life in God's presence. Become intimately familiar with the love and the grace that God lavishes upon you Every single day. It's as you spend time abiding in God's word, abiding in prayer, in fellowship with him, that you yourself will be transformed and you'll be able to live out what, what God calls us to in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. You'll be able to put on humility and meekness and compassionate hearts and kindness and patience 
bearing with one another. Recipients of God's grace are called to be reflections of God's grace in our marriages. And that happens as we abide in Christ and look to Him. Okay, let me pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that you not only removed our sin, but you gave us the gracious gift of the righteousness of Jesus so that on the day of your return, we'll be able to stand before you holy and blameless without reproach. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to come to a greater and greater understanding of your love for us. Help us to come to know and, and, and grasp what it means to be God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. And may that transform our lives. May that empower us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience within our marriages. Help us to demonstrate this this grace that we see in the gospel towards our spouse. We can't do it in our flesh. We need you to change us. So help us to submit to that every single day. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.